Well, what a happy time and a happy season. And we're going to talk a little bit about movement disorders and kick off the end of this year and get us ready for some very important clinical applications in the new year. Uh, Specifically, we want to talk about dystonia. And dystonia really is a very complex type of disorder. And we know more about it clinically and scientifically this year than we've known for a long period of time. Now, when we look at uh, movement disorders in general, we realize that motor control, at least at the neural systems level, is modulated by the basal ganglia. And you've spent so much time learning different loops and pathways. But really, what does it mean traditionally? Very simplistically, we think of the basal ganglia input as a mechanism in the nervous system to balance excitation and inhibition of motor systems that would compete with each other. Now, the basic model has been applied to explain two main pathways, a direct pathway that goes from the striatum directly to the output, and an indirect pathway that is polysynaptic. The basic consensus that we've had for such a long period of time is that the direct pathway is excitatory to movement and the uh, indirect pathway is inhibitory uh, to movement. And of course, the applications that we've seen clinically have sort of been based upon this model and there's a variety of other models that have uh, really popped out to give us a different understanding of the things that we are uh, really looking at today clinically. Now, I've been dealing in movement disorders for almost 40 years, and I have just seen a lot of them, and I've developed a lot of treatment, and I've made a lot of errors, but the errors and the successes have, uh, have enabled me to understand things a little bit better today than yesterday. Well, when I started at the end of the 70s and throughout the 80s, everybody was going just crazy in science, describing the basal ganglia and developing the model of circuitry that we seem to understand very well from an anatomical and a functional uh, methodology. Now, when we looked at the, the classical direct and indirect pathway, the model that we know, there was a lot of work that went into this model that gave us the evidence, both anatomically and physiologically, of the other networks in the basal ganglia. So this helps us today. And and basically, uh, we're going to say that the basal ganglia has an input and an output. The input is the striatum, that's a caudate in the putamen, and the output is uh, basically the globus pallidus and the substantia nigra. So what do we know about the input? Well, the input receives and integrates glutamatergic excitatory projections that come from the brain and the thalamus, but it also has this neuromodulatory uh, dopaminergic afferents that come from the mesencephalon. So these midbrain dopaminergic um, activity integrate with the cortical and the thalamic glutamatergic excitatory projections. And all of the inputs are going to converge onto these dendritic spines of GABAergic inhibitory medium spiny neurons that represent about 95% of the striatal neuronal uh, population. And 
and they've got some large cholinergic uh, interneurons. Mm -hmm. So when we look at these dendritic spines, these gamma amino butyric acid inhibitory uh, median spiny neurons, that's the GABA inhibitory neurons, that's the majority of the bulk of what you're going to see in the striatum, in the caudate, in the putamen. So the direct and indirect pathway model of the basal ganglia really popped out as an attempt to really let us understand what happens uh, in clinical disorders, but primarily in Parkinson's disease, which is the, the most prominent one. And there's been some very interesting tracing studies and uh, different uh, reports lately using optogenetic activity in, in free rats that have really told us a lot of how the basal ganglionic networks actually work. And of course, you can imagine that things are not as simple as they are in a flowchart. So there, it really is now suggested that the two output pathways, which we've identified, are really interconnected to coordinate their actions. And as a consequence of this interconnection, you really can't activate one without activating the other. Now, recently, there's been some marvelous work uh, from Maxime Cazorla and the group at Columbia where uh, Maxime did his uh, postdoctoral work. He's from Paris. He's now back up in uh, Grenoble at the Grenoble Institute of Neuroscience in INSERM. And you're going to be seeing a lot from him in the future. But uh, his group uh, in, uh, in New York published a magnificent paper recently in Neuron. And what they did is they, they talked about plasticity and the, the plasticity that we see of axon collaterals that come out of the direct pathway of the basal ganglia, they, they functionally bridge the mm -hmm. striatal output pathways of both the direct and the indirect pathway into the external globus pallidus and control the balance of motor coordination. That's fantastic to me. It's very, very complex, and then we can understand some of the clinical things that we're, we're doing. So what do we know about the classical pathways of the, the basal ganglia? Well, very, very uh, specifically, they just came out of this retro-labeling uh, combined with the understanding of neuronal populations from a, a molecular basis in uh, into the striatum. And in this model, there was found to be this duality of organization in the output neurons of the striatum, and there was a connection of the striatum as the input nucleus in the basal ganglia that would take uh, information from the brain and the thalamus and the mesencephalon and just integrate it and have a different type of an output. Well, the, the medium spinal neurons that receive the information from the thalamus and the cerebral cortex, as well as the mesencephalic dopaminergic inputs, uh, are, are going to give us some understanding, not only in the development of pharmacy, but in the development of physical modalities of activation that seem to have a better probability of having individual uh, success. So the, these medium spinal neurons that receive all of this information inside the striatum, what do they do? Well, they project to the output nuclei, which is really considered to be the globus pallidus pars interna, the closest area of the globus pallidus to the uh, internal capsule, if you would, as well as to the substantia nigra pars reticulata. And these projections 
are really just, uh, they're direct. And that's pretty darn cool. So these medium spinal neurons have direct uh, projections uh, that go to the globus pallidus pars interna, but they also have a polysynaptic pathway, which of course would not be so direct. And therefore, these polysynaptic pathways are the indirect pathways that have been associated with the inhibition of movement will uh, cause relays in the external portion of the globus pallidus as well as the subthalamic nucleus. The subthalamic nucleus receives a lot of information from the limbic cerebral cortex and the subthalamic nucleus excites the nigral inhibition of rostral superior collicular excitation of omnipause inhibition of uh, psychotic uh, generators in the pont and in the mesencephalon. So we're going to tie uh, what happens in the eyes to what happens in the in the extremities and in the trunk and onwards we go. But the, the, the key points to, to think of here is that because these output neurons from the striatum are GABAergic, activation of the direct pathway would promote uh, movement in initiation, but activation of the indirect pathway would inhibit movement. And this has been confirmed, of course, with optogenetic tools in the freely moving uh, mice. And we can talk a lot, and we will, about what's happening in the different receptors of dopamine. And we'll talk about what happens uh, with the co-expression of these medium spinal neurons from the direct pathway and the indirect pathway, and onwards we go. We are developing a updated movement disorders curriculum that's really based upon many years of clinical experience and actually uh, having worked with patients, not with with, uh, with textbooks, we, we like to read them, but at the end of the day, it's the patient that really dictates uh, the individual activity that we have. So when we look at uh, the human nervous system and when we look at things like dystonia or posturing, we have to realize that there's a whole load of models and some of them are a little more right for one look and a little less right for another look. Uh, recently, we have uh, re-explored Anne Blood's uh, seminal work in correlating or producing a model that suggests that dystonia is, uh, is really a, a product of uh, aberrancies in a postural uh, system. So classically, when we look at these individual models, we look at motor systems and say, well, we know what a postural motor system does allows us to stand up, resist gravity, but we also realize that there's also a movement system. So it's very romantic to suggest that we've got two motor systems. One is a movement system, one is a postural system. And basically, uh, we have to look at this a little bit different and realize that the postural system itself is much more complex than just stabilizing ourselves so, they won't, so that we won't fall. For instance, if you have a postural abnormality, part of the postural system is to initiate movement that will assist you in preventing a fall, whether it's an arm coming out to hold on to something or catch something or the movement of a leg uh, so that your limit of stability would be decreased. So all of a sudden, you start to look at the postural system as a system that has both activation of motor pathways as well as stabilization of motor pathways, and this, of course, can explain all 
of the individual possible presentations of dystonia within a postural control system that facilitates movement and non-movement. So rather than directly inhibiting movement, as we would think classically of standing still and upright like a, a guard at a gate, a postural function can have an inhibitory influence on movement or a facilitatory uh, influence on movement. So the implications that we see clinically to understand uh, motor systems and understand the postural systems are really related to spinal intrinsic activity. That's that postural area that sort of grabs the heart and soul of, of chiropractors. And um, current models for dystonia are rather robust. There's a few of them. Some of them just fail to explain the, the features of, the, of this dynamic postural uh, system. For instance, sometimes people have dystonic tremor, which is referred to as uh, ab an abnormal movement or an amplified uh, movement that can result from coactivation of competing uh, motor programs. So when we, we look at uh, movement disorders in general, we like to block them into the akinetic or non-moving uh, movement disorders and the kinetic or movement movement disorders. And then we divide the ones that move or the hyperkinetic disorders into uh, different uh, components that would be associated with jerky or non-jerky movement. So dystonia can be static or hypokinetic and it can be dynamic or hyperkinetic. And as a consequence, it really was thought that we'd have two different pathways involved. But we know that this combination of hyperkinesis and uh, hypokinesis occurs within one individual, and it is more reasonable to suggest that they have a commonality anatomically and uh, physiologically, and it gives us a greater clinical armamentarium if we can classify these dystonias, whether they're increased movement or the tremor, or whether it's just the posturing or the painful turning and contraction of muscles within the same functional neural system, because it allows us to look at targeting in a markedly more robust uh, fashion. And that is something that is very, very important uh, for us to do. So when we look at this um, heterogeneity of symptoms, some moving, some dynamic, then we realize that whatever a system we can hang our brains around has got to involve both of these individual activities. Now, sometimes we realize that an individual may have a problem with their cerebellum and have a dystonic posturing or movement, or they may have a problem in their cerebral cortex, or they may have a problem in their visual system, or they may have a problem in the cord or in the brainstem. And what happens is, is that the integrated system that causes changes or gating in the basal ganglia is very, very widely uh, distributed. So we will realize that we can use cerebellar activation in treatment and diagnosing, uh, diagnostic uh, paradigms. We can use the uh, sensory motor cortex of the brain similarly as we can use the brain stem and the cord. So at the end of the day, we understand better now 
than in the 70s that uh, dystonia can be as a consequence of genetic disturbances, uh, disturbances in the anatomy of the brain, or functional disturbances of the circuitry or the integration of the brain itself. We also realize that sometimes the sensory motor system is a little disorganized or the maps inside uh, inside the brain that represent body parts are not representing them as purely as they they should be and that we have a very good probability that sensory motor integration is impaired such that when we uh, go to write something just uh, we can get a, a spasm of our hands or we can have a musician's dystonia or quite simply if we stand to walk or move a, a joint and the feedback is abnormal then where we can have problems. At the end of the day, we realize that the somatotopic maps can be disorganized in dystonic uh, patients. And the conceptual model that we need to embrace therapeutically says that it's really not a functional disorganization which results in this painful dystonic posturing, but rather hyperactivity within a functional neural system that is very complex and whose function is usually uh, highly uh, subtle and often automatic, that now uh, we're going to have this uh, hyperactivity, this wind-up within something. And this is very, very important because uh, clinically uh, we, we look at these heterogeneous distributions or combinations of slow and fast types of movements. And this suggests that we can say that if a person has got an akinetic movement, then the lesion is here. If they're hyperkinetic, then it's here. And that really just doesn't make sense because if we understand that the motor system of the brain is distributed into components that involve dynamic and static uh, constituents, then we can understand a commonality between all movement of humankind as well as movement that has been uh, categorized as being uh, pathological. So in order to do this, we need to integrate uh, what we know in an evidence-based model with the literature to what we see in patients and then onwards into what we can see with our diagnostic and uh, therapeutic uh, types of uh, types of events. So when we look at the literature on posture, and our group has really contributed a lot to this. You know, we think of standing on a force plate, and are you leaning to the left or the right, or your shoulders back? How much are you moving? How much are you you swaying? So we're going to 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 realize that we have a paucity of really fluent information in regards to posture that. In the past, we have looked at posture more as where is the body part in space and what is its position and how do you maintain this balance, uh, particularly when you're moving or if you're walking or if you're running. And we find that we, we really talk about uh, stability or stabilizing forces and we talk about some considerations of the limits of stability where we can measure people's sway and say that if you exceed your limit of stability, you're going to have to have a compensation or your fall, whether the compensation might be to move your foot forward or to the side or to grab onto the monkey bar. Uh, it really doesn't matter. But the, the important thing that, that matters is that 
uh, in order to have a static uh, system that will hold you up, you need to have a dynamic portion of it. So we know that postural uh, mechanisms of the vestibular system and the somatosensory system can stabilize the body, and we know that we need core strength, and we know that when people lift things that they can exert stressors onto their midline structures and they can have sprains and strains. But despite all of the stabilizing uh, compo uh, components and mm -hmm. the, the tonic components of postural control to maintain our muscle tone at rest, uh, we also have these dynamic uh, components that will adjust posture in relationship to balance or to perturbations or environmental types of stressors. And this occurs when we're sitting, when we're standing, when we're lying, or, or when we're moving. And so the postural system must be a dynamic one in order to do its job. So because it must be dynamic, uh, it would stand to reason that sometimes you're going to have problems with the dynamic components. And these problems could look like abnormal movements if the arm should come out nicely just to to hold the wall, but it's flying out uh, madly, such as in hyperkinetic dystonia, this would really say that you've got these uh, abnormal functionality or integration of the output of dynamic uh, posture. So what are the areas that really contribute to posture? We know them very well within our group. The vestibular nuclei, it integrates through the a brainstem and the cerebellum, and of course the proprioceptive information uh, from the spinal cord. But we also have these top-down uh, integrations into the basal ganglia from the premotor areas and the, the sensory motor cortex, as well as the dorsal lateral uh, frontal cortex, the limbic system, and its influence into the indirect pathway, and on and on. So there is evidence that the entire brain is going to participate in postural control and that brain-based treatments might have a consequence not only in increasing stability but in the dynamic reactions to perturbations and to 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 look at uh, harnessing of these things as we as we sculpt a new uh, patient that we michelangelize uh, somebody's uh, body parts and we can do so very very much so when we look at the number of uh, roles of the basal ganglia in posture and other types of uh, activities, we get very, very uh, excited. We also know that in certain diseases that have these phenotypical or anatomical markers, such as uh, Parkinson's disease, that we've got other models. We also have models in lesioned animals, rats and and monkeys and the lesions can be in a variety of different places. We also have pharmacological models. We know what happens particularly in dopamine replacement therapies that can show uh, an improvement in background postural uh, tones. We know that the basal ganglia contributes to all of these aspects of postural control and that uh, this, this whole postural system, if we can talk about this whole integrated uh, nervous system is can be looked at as a um, well almost like a train station or a control station or an air traffic ATC uh, control so 
what are the, the concepts that we seem to understand about the interaction of posture and the interaction of movement? Uh, one is that movement can be achieved uh, via a, a trajectory of postural equilibrium points or that walking is merely a bunch of controlled falls or steps. So uh, there's a great tendency now to understand that movement is really an emergent property of static postures that are linked together in the shift between the two of them. Uh, and this is sort of romantic, but it's also romantic to think that we've got distinct neural networks that would implement uh, different functions, uh, orientation of the body versus movement of the body, and uh, onwards and onwards. However, uh, when we look at the probability of having two different systems, it just would not allow us to do the choreography uh, or the dance of life that we can that we can really uh, look at. So when we look at human posture uh, and we look at the literature, we get hit with all of these uh, functions of stabilizing. And the stabilization of human form allows us to maintain a certain shape and orientation, a resistance to gravity, and a point from which to initiate uh, movement. Or we would say that in order to uh, stabilize a, a joint or stabilize the body, then we're going to need to have coactivation of muscles that ordinarily would work against each other. So in order to stabilize around a joint, uh, we need to activate antagonistic muscles. Or you stabilize the elbow, you, you want to have equal uh, motions of, uh, of a flexor muscle and an extensor muscle about the elbow itself. And, and we also need to have contractions of, of muscles that would act synergistically. So this concert of synergistic stabilization and activation and this um, orchestra, if you would, of simultaneous activations of antagonistic muscles is really uh, pretty darn uh, beautiful. So when we look at these individual functions, we would say that the hallmark of postural integrity is the ability for the central nervous system to cause co-contraction of muscles that normally wouldn't work together. And when the system fails or is augmented, then that contraction may cause us problems in movement where we can't move a joint because of contractures, or it may cause us a dynamic component when there's movement of muscles to respond to a postural perturbation when there really isn't a postural uh, perturbation. So when we look at terms such as agonist and antagonist, what do we mean? Well, when we look at antagonistic muscles, we're going to say that we're talking about muscles that would work opposite to each other in the context of producing movements that were different or opposed, such as flexors and extensors, adductors, abductors, etc., and onwards and onwards, or in the spinal neuraxes from uh, the left side of the vertebral motion segment to the right side. Now, when we look at the tonic activity that occurs, these are pacemaker effects. And we know that this pacemaker affects throughout the nervous system. We know it occurs in the visual system. We know it occurs in general body parts and, and other uh, aspects as well. So when we look at coactivation, we're going to say 
that the contraction of muscles would occur in, in phases resulting in a uh, mechanical situation, either of stability or of non-stability. And when there's stabilization that involves this coactivation of different muscles that would oppose themselves, then the job of our nervous system is to say, well, am I going to recruit both of these muscles that are co-contracting, or am I going to add in another muscle or muscle group when one group is already active? And therefore, the postural signal itself doesn't, doesn't by itself cause the recruitment of both agonist and antagonistic uh, muscles. But what we would say is that if we have co-contraction of muscles, that the postural system is obviously functioning, even if it's functioning incorrectly. And therefore, things that we can do to affect human posture should have a component of affecting uh, human motion, the dynamic portion of the motion itself. So when we look at the, the tonic activation of antagonists, we also realize that when we have movement, that co-contraction must be inhibited. And when we look at how posture can be inhibited, we can say that mm -hmm. the functional mm -hmm. system must have a very broad consequence to so many, many, many uh, different things. So when we have two functionally antagonistic muscles and one of them contracts during a movement, um, then, then the activity in the, in the muscle that would oppose that movement would have to be inhibited or else it would interfere with the movement itself. So when we look at both of these agonists and antagonists over a period of time of a complex movement, oftentimes we forget that these muscles are very active simultaneously. It's not a, an all or, or nothing thing where someone says, I'm going to bend my arm, and when I uh, cause my biceps to fire, it's going to inhibit my triceps. True, but not an on or off. It doesn't knock them right out. It just sort of dulls it a little bit. So the, the movement must be inhibited in some degree in order to move, but it doesn't mean that the muscles that are inhibited drop out of the picture or drop out of functionality altogether. These movements must be locally sculpted. So when we do our treatments and we, we uh, Michelangelize uh, the person and we, we, we bring out something beautiful uh, to that person's movement or we make it a little more stable, it, it's something that we have to control to varying degrees the aspect of motor control that's associated in both the dynamic and the non-dynamic or tonic activities. So we also realize that uh, in order to do things that are really fancy, like playing a violin or picking a guitar or playing a piano or just writing or doing dentistry or doing a chiropractic uh, mm -hmm. adjustment or manipulation, that sometimes uh, there's different obstacles uh, to the individual movement or uh, different things that we have to overcome so that we know that these high human uh, motor uh, performances are not hardwired. They, they've got to be accomplished over a period of time that allows us to 
to counteract uh, different agonistic muscles with antagonistic integrities that would would fine tune the trajectory of movement and pull the individual muscle in the desired direction. So we would say in a very simplistic uh, point of view that the tonic control of antagonistic muscles observed at rest uh, must be inhibited during movement and that the dynamic phasic patterns in the same muscles are such that the neural signals both to move and to oppose the individual movement must be activated during the movement and work as uh, processes that are uh, complementary. This has to do a great deal with learning. It has to do with the fact that uh, one muscle group is going to have an effect on another muscle group, uh, be it an agonist or an individual antagonist, but all of them must have a higher level of postural function that's re required at the local segmental level that is uh, ready with a feed-forward mechanism and is influenced by a feed-back uh, mechanism. So the dynamic integration of a human postural system that does more than simply stabilize can be uh, amplified uh, and, and as a consequence, it may result in muscles working in the absence of any uh, signal from the muscle itself. And that's very, very important that when lesions occur in the brain, the, the, the individual muscle doesn't need to have a force on the muscle to contract against the individual muscle itself so that the movement programs that we see or these spinal movement programs are not really... Uh, necessary. So where are the signals that are coming from that are going to allow us to have these very, uh, oh, what do you say, uh, choreographed stabilizing moments or uh, activating dynamic uh, movements? Well, when we look at abnormal motor unit synchronization of antagonistic muscles, that we can record with an EMG and a, a cervical torticollis. Uh, th this tells us that we have a probability that the, the muscle is firing before the movement uh, tries to, to occur, and that the movement or the postural systems are very, very active and integrated, and uh, as a consequence, during individual movement itself, the postural motor integration is going to be less than ideal because we cannot inhibit one uh, because, of the, because of the other. So we're going to talk about the infinite combinations of motoric posturing that can occur with the, the body. And we're going to be talking about parallel systems and we're going to be talking about different functional ways to integrate the things that we know into a system and, and give ourselves some coding so that we might be able to understand and measure the consequence of different types of uh, therapies. What we know right now is that if you've got antagonistic muscles that are co-contracting, the postural system is working. It's just working way, way too much. It's doing its job that it normally should do when it doesn't need to do its job. It's like super, uh, super, super worker. And 
when we know that uh, you have sustained contractions of individual muscles, I think it's better to consider that we've got an increased uh, expression of functionality and this clinical presentation could be viewed as an overactivation or a disproportionate amplification of the signal in one or more components of the postural control system. And this is the uh, model that Ann Blood has sort of brought to the table for us. Well, I've given you a little peek of uh, some what I hope would be exciting things for you and you could listen for boy, the rest of our lives to some marvelous new uh, research activity and we're going to share with you some of our clinical activities that uh, have really allowed us to make a difference. In order to make a difference we have to understand uh, concepts and to understand concepts you have to think in complex mechanisms that are non-Cartesian uh, there's only uh, so many variables that you can put into an individual model. Well, it's going to be exciting for us, and I'm going to be exciting, exciting, hopefully, but excited to participate in sharing more specific to movement disorders as we come about our, uh, our new year. So happy uh, new year to everyone. Merry, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. And I look forward to seeing you very, very soon.